Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to be here to study your holy and precious word. Thank you that it is the word of Christ that saves us from our sins and shows us how to live faithfully in Christ. We ask that from our study of this passage that we will be drawn to you, drawn to you by your Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into all the truth and show us, Lord, how to live before you in all godliness, in fear, in love, and for your glory. Teach us, Lord, for we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Chapter 25 of Genesis, verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah, and she bore to him Zimron, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, and Letushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, and Epher, and Hanok, and Abidah, and Eldaah. All these were the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. And these are all the years of Abraham's life, that he lived 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, Zohar the Hittite facing Mamre the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac lived by Be'er Laha-Roi. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, in order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbiel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadad, and Temah, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes, and these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. Now, in this portion of scripture, we certainly have just read about the death of Abraham. And here, Moses is telling us not only about the death of Abraham, but what matters he settled before his death in relation to his wives and their children. That's what we have in verses 1 to 11 in reference to Keturah, and then in verses 12 to 18 in reference to Hagar. And this is done in order to set them aside and distinct from what is about to be said to us in relation to Isaac and then later Jacob. In 2519, it's Isaac, and then further on in the book of Genesis, Jacob, and then Joseph. Moses 
tells us in chapter 25, verse 1, that Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, commentators are uncertain and perplexed and don't know when to place it, and some have strong opinions that it must have been at one point or another in Abraham's life. They say that after Abraham received uh, rejuvenation or potency to be able to um, give seed to Sarah when he was 99 and 100 years old, that at that point his ability remained until his death or later on for many more years or decades. It wasn't just a one-time occurrence with Sarah to bear Isaac. And those interpreters say he also took Keturah, whether after the time that Isaac was born or after the death of Sarah, which happened in chapter 23. They say it took place later in Abraham's life. Other interpreters say, no, that would not have been the case. God would not have done so. It would have just been a one-time occurrence with Sarah and Isaac. It must have been earlier in his life. That's what they say. And they say earlier in his life because of the number of children that Keturah bears. And there are even grandsons mentioned here. For example, in verse uh, verse 4, the son would be Midian and then the grandsons would be those from Midian in verse 4. Well, I don't think because Moses does not make it an issue, I don't think it really matters whether God miraculously gave him the ability to give seed and to have more children after he was 100 years old or about the 100th year and onward, or whether this was earlier in his life. I don't think that that is really the issue. So it doesn't really matter. We just know that he had these two additional wives in addition to Sarah. In verse 1, Keturah is called a wife. But we will see in verse 6 that it says his concubines, plural. We do know from verse 12 that Hagar was one of his concubines that Sarah gave to Abraham as a wife, as it says in Genesis chapter 16. It actually says in Genesis 16, as a wife. And in the same way, Keturah in verse 1 is said to be his wife. They are concubines, but they're also wives. A concubine was not a prostitute. A concubine was not casual uh, prostitution, not, nothing like that. It was not that at all. They were in the household. They had responsibilities. They bore children They were committed to each other. They were not supposed to go and commit adultery or fornicate with anybody else. It wasn't like that. It was not prostitution. Another matter to clarify is some interpreters think that Keturah and Hagar are the same woman. That Keturah and Hagar are the same woman because it would be astounding and unacceptable to think that Abraham would have had Three wives, two is bad enough, let alone three, right? So that's the way some interpret this, that Keturah and Hagar are the same. However, that is impossible. Right. 
It's plainly, clearly impossible because in the first verses, verses 1 to 11, it takes up, especially in verses 1 to uh, 4, takes up Keturah and her descendants, sons and grandsons, who are distinct and different from verses 12 to 18, the sons of Hagar. For example, Ishmael is a son of Hagar, not a son of Keturah. And other names are very distinct and different names. So they could not be the same woman. They are different women. Then verses 2 to 4. In verses 2 to 4, it mentions the various sons and grandsons of Keturah. Now, most of these names are obscure. And even in history, it's uncertain to, uh, to be able to designate and to state clearly who each one were, except for maybe two or three of these names. For example, in verse 2, Midian. Verse 4, Midian. Midian, the son of Keturah. And then in verse 4, the, grandson, uh, the sons of Midian, which would be the grandsons of Abraham and Keturah, are mentioned there in verses 2 to 4. Midian, we know to be one of those nations that lived south of the land of Canaan in the desert between Egypt and the land of Canaan. And even Moses went and fled as a refuge to the land of Midian and married the son of a Midianite, Jethro, or Reuel, Jethro in Midian. He married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro. And so we know that both inside and outside the Bible, the land of Midian. Another one in verse 3, we know from later in Scripture, most likely is the same as in Job chapter 1, verse 15. In Job 1, 15, it says that the Sabaeans, or the nation of Sheba, right here, this tribe or nation, they attacked the possessions of Job. Job would have lived in the proximity of these people, the Sabaeans. The Sabaeans would have also been a village that was south of Canaan in the area of Arabia, south of Canaan. So Job would have been on the southeastern side, on the eastern side of the sea uh, or of the Dead Sea. And so there would have been some uh, proximity to these tribes so that one would want to invade and loot and plunder another. And that's what happened likely with the Sabaeans or the nation of Sheba against Job. And then the, the third one is um, the Dedanites. And in other places, like in the book of Isaiah, they are put in poetry set as parallel to the Arabians, to the Arabians. Verse five. Now, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Now, when it says he gave all that he had to Isaac, obviously that excludes verse six, the gifts, the gifts he gave to the sons of his concubines in verse six and then in verses 12 to 18. When it says all that he had to Isaac, this must have meant the, the bulk of his possessions and the last will and testament and the promises of God, that is the spiritual promises of God, were from Abraham to Isaac. 
That's what he gave in, in total to Isaac. Those main blessings in the last will and testament, material blessings and the spiritual blessings that Isaac received were not received by these descendants of Keturah, nor by the descendants of Hagar. They did not receive them. They received certain material benefits, certain gifts, perhaps gold and silver, certain movable gifts. In verse 6, it says, To the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. That is what they received. And they were also sent away to go and inherit, go and possess another land, another territory away from Isaac and Isaac's descendants. It says in verse 6, while he was still living, he did this. Why would he do it while he's still living? Because Abraham, being a man of faith and also a man of peace, he did it while he was alive. He did it as a man of faith because he was demonstrating to all that he truly did believe in the promises of God, the spiritual promises of God, which would be transferred and fulfilled in Isaac and Isaac's descendants, Isaac, Jacob, so forth, until the time of Christ, because that is the ultimate goal of the spiritual promises, salvation in Jesus Christ. He was demonstrating that he believed that and he was hoping in that for his son Isaac and telling everyone that fact and demonstrating it also in a practical and material way by keeping Isaac in the land of Canaan and sending his other descendants and uh, their grandsons away to other nations or to other territories for them to inherit those. That's what he does in faith while he's still alive. But he's also a man of peace. What happens... Often, what happens often in families and clans when a, a patriarch or a matriarch dies? There is conflict. Even though those families and relatives might have peace or relative peace throughout their whole life, the siblings have that. Upon the death of a parent, the last parent, all conflict, all division, all animosity breaks up. It rises to the top and there's conflict. Well, in order to head that off, in order to prevent that, Abraham handles these matters while he's alive and even sends the potentially conflicting parties away from each other so that they don't have a need or a pretext to bring up conflict. And to do so while he's alive, a man of peace. Now, verse six says he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. He sent them away. Well, we see this as well in verse 18. Verse 18. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. As one goes toward Assyria, he settled in defiance of all his relatives. We'll come back to what that means, defiance, and how it should better be rendered. Uh, Nevertheless, we see from verses 6 and 18, they are living separately, and Abraham is sending them away separately to avoid these problems. Verse 
6 also says, it says, eastward to the land of the east. This land of the east is east of Canaan, but, uh, and sometimes it is directly east, sometimes it's northeast, and sometimes it's southeast. But more often in history, and according to verse 18, it is both southeast and then also it goes southwest. But generally speaking, the Bible says the land of the east or the sons of the east, that is east and especially southeast of the land of Canaan. He sent them in that direction. And in verse 18, when it says he settled in defiance of all his relatives, it actually in the original language says he, uh, he settled in the presence of or before his relatives. And in the scripture, one faces east and says he is facing east or east is before him. So west is behind him, which would be the Mediterranean Sea. And then south is called the south, but also called the right hand. And then the north is to the left. And that's the way the compass is uh, described in the scripture. So before him would be to the east. And I think in verse 18, in defiance is not a good translation from the New American Standard Bible. I think it should better say he settled it before his relatives. That is, in, in, before meaning to the east of his relatives who lived in the west, relative to where he was. He settled east of the Dead Sea and southeast of the Dead Sea and then his relatives were west of it. That's what I think is better uh, to be uh, the translation for, for that. Though we know there was conflict, I don't think that verse 18 is describing conflict, but describing localities, lo- describing geography. That's what the context is. The context is not a context of conflict. Then, verse 7. And these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. He lived to be 175. This is um, significant in that it says in verse 8, he lived in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. God gave to Abraham a long life. We know at some point he was converted in the land of the Chaldeans, in Ur of the Chaldeans. It says in Genesis chapter 12 that by the time he came to the land of Canaan, by the land of Canaan, he was 75 years old. 75. Genesis 12 verse 4. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That's when he departed from there and came into the land of Canaan, which means he lived in Canaan for 100 years. In Canaan, 100 years. And even though God had made many promises, some of them were fulfilled in his lifetime of 175 years, but many of them were not. And during that time, 100 years in the land of Canaan, Bit by bit, little by little, gradually, one promise after another was fulfilled. The most significant one for him in terms of 
seeing it with his own eyes was Isaac. And it took 25 years for him to see Isaac once he entered the land of Canaan. 25 years. We also know about the famines that took place, the conflicts that took place, the uncertainties, the threat of his life, the wars that he had to experience in the land of Canaan. These various uh, trials he experienced while he was there. It was not a pleasant and happy life the whole time in terms of his day-to-day, year-by-year experiences. It was one of turmoil. It was one of temptation. It was one of uncertainty. It was one that threatened his life time after time. But God was faithful during those 100 years in the land of Canaan. Verse 8 He breathes his last breath, dies in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. These descriptions are teaching us that he did not die in a miserable way in the end of his life. It's teaching us that he breathed his last, meaning he breathed it calmly. He wasn't a terrified man. He wasn't frightened about the life to come. He wasn't a man with no assurance of his eternal destiny. He was not one who was sitting or lying on his deathbed with anguish and terror and torment, wondering what's going to happen to him upon death. He did not have the fear of death. He breathed his last breath in peace. And he died in a ripe old age. Usually in Scripture, not always, but usually in Scripture, one who is faithful to God lives a peaceful and happy life for a long time. Peaceful and happy in the sense that his mind is at peace, his heart is at peace. That's the way in which he lived his life, to a ripe old age. Now, an exception would be, If you are persecuted and someone kills you, that would be an exception. You might die of persecution at the age of 20 or 40 or some other age and not live to be 70 or 80 or even longer than that. You won't live that way with that kind of an exception. Exceptions do arise, but the promise and the pattern of Scripture is that your faithfulness to God is demonstrated in his blessing in your life to a ripe old age. He was also satisfied with life. Satisfied with life. He was not on his deathbed looking back in regret, looking back and thinking about all the things he had done because he knew, one, he was forgiven in Christ, but he also knew, number two, he lived his life with a perfectly good conscience, as the Apostle Paul says. It is important for us to live our life with a good conscience, doing the best of our ability with what God has revealed to us in his word and also manifested in our conscience in agreement with his word that what we have done is to live a faithful life before God. He, at the end of his life, he had that kind of satisfaction, that kind of peace of mind, that kind of comfort that that's the way he lived. He did not live a ruthless life. He did not live a reprobate life. He did not live like a ruffian 
somebody who was a rascal and a tormentor of people and beating down his conscience, searing his conscience. He wasn't a person like that. He was living a godly life until the very end. That's why he was satisfied with life. Not to say that he was glad about all of the hardships he experienced, except to the extent that they sanctified him. In that sense, he was satisfied until the the very end. Further, it says in verse 9, he was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. At this point, we know in verse 9, it's speaking of the grave, right? He went and his body was buried in the grave. Who was in this grave before him? Only one. And that was Sarah, Genesis chapter 23. Only Sarah was there in that grave. According to verse 9, he purchased it back there in Genesis 23. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. And there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Only Sarah was buried there up to that point. But it says he was gathered to his people. People is plural. Sarah is singular. He was buried there, but his soul survived his body. This is an indication in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that the spirit or the soul survives the body. The body lives on average, 70 or 80 years old, as it says in Psalm 90, it lives to be, on average, 70 to 80 years old. But after the body is buried, such as Abraham's was, his soul survived his body. It continued in the afterlife. That's why it says he was gathered to his people. This is an expression that occurs several times throughout Scripture, Let's see a a couple of examples here in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we see it in verse 17, that Ishmael was also gathered to his people. Gathered to his people. Now, Abraham was gathered to his people, meaning his godly people, his redeemed people, ancestors, both literally and figuratively in the faith, gathered to them. But Ishmael, being an unbeliever, which we will show in a few minutes, Ishmael, being an unbeliever, was gathered to his people also, to the unbelieving, wicked, reprobate people in the afterlife. There are two destinations in the afterlife, either a good or an evil place. The good place where Abraham and Sarah and others Went and then Ishmael and others go there to the, their own place. Even it says in Acts chapter 1 that Judas went to his own place, right? He did not go to heaven, he went to his own place. He went to the place of the wicked, not to the place of the righteous. And that's the same distinction here. Further, in Genesis chapter 35, Genesis 35, 29. 
Genesis 35, 29. It says that Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. There too, Isaac goes to the same place. Further, when when, uh, Jacob dies, chapter 49, Genesis chapter 49, 49, 29, 49, 29. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in, the, in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This is important to notice, and it's important to make this distinction between the body and the soul, because the Old Testament does teach about the afterlife and our need to prepare for the afterlife. The Old Testament is not exclusively or mostly about the physical world. It is not that. We cannot make and should not ever make a distinction in in saying the Old Testament is mostly or exclusively teaching us about the present world, but the New Testament is mostly or exclusively teaching us about the world to come. No. It doesn't work that way. From the very beginning, from the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, the Bible is teaching us both about the spiritual world and about the physical world. Both of them are true from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 onward. For example, in Genesis 2.9, why does it mention the tree of life? Why does it mention the tree of life? Because the Bible is about the spiritual and the material world. It's about both. And of course, since the spiritual world is eternal, that's more important. And this is just one indication in Genesis 25 that to be gathered to his people has to do with the belief that the soul survives the body. It does not die in the physical sense like the body dies. The soul continues. Now, the soul is dead in the spiritual sense in terms of sin, but it's not dead in the sense that it is uh, without life or awareness. It has awareness. It is living in the sense that it's always alive, but it's not alive spiritually before God because it's dead in sin. So in that sense, it's dead, and the Bible teaches that. And if that deadness of sin is not rectified in the soul by redemption in Christ, then that deadness in sin persists for all eternity, such as it happened to Ishmael and Esau. The Bible is teaching that from the Old Testament onward. Further, 
we notice in verses 9 and 10 that Isaac and Ishmael practiced burial. We have spoken of the necessity and importance of burial from Genesis chapter 23. The Christian buries their dead. Why? Why do Christians bury their dead? Because they believe in the day of resurrection. They believe that it is a manifestation and token of faith to bury our dead because there will be a day when those who are asleep, figuratively speaking, will wake up or rise from the dead and be alive forevermore. The Christian believes this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12.2, they awake from the ground, the righteous awake to everlasting life, the wicked awake to everlasting death or contempt, it says. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Acts 24.15, these truths are in the Bible established here in the Old Testament. This is why we bury our dead, we do not cremate our dead, We do not cremate cremate our, our dead because we believe in resurrection. Those who deny resurrection, Hindus and Buddhists, they cremate their dead. And even in so called secular America, typically this cremation of dead bodies occurs usually with. Irreligious people, atheistic, agnostic people in America, and also Christians or those who claim Christianity who have not been taught, who have not been thinking about these matters. That's how it is. So very, very superficial or secular kind of Christians, if we can use an oxymoron, a secular Christian. They claim to be Christian, but really their mentality and their worldview is secular. But that's not the way of Scripture. The way of Scripture is to bury. And in the Scripture, the examples in Scripture of those who are burned are the, those examples of unbelievers. Unbelievers. For example, in Genesis 38, Judah thought that Tamar, for her sin, deserved to be burned. In Leviticus 21, a priest's daughter who defiles herself, fornicates, deserves to be burned. What happened to Achan and his family in Joshua chapter 7 when they sinned against God? They were burned, they were first stoned, and then they were burned to death, or or burned, uh, their bodies were burned, cremated, if you want to call it that. They were burned. So in Scripture, that is the distinction. Further, we see in verse 9, Ishmael is mentioned. Ishmael is mentioned as having still enough respect for his father and humanity in him that he knew that the right and decent thing was to bury his father. We expect Isaac to do it, but we see that Ishmael did it. Ishmael, as an unbeliever, did so. We'll come back to that point. Verse 11, And it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac 
And Isaac lived by Be'er Lahai Roi. So after Abraham dies, a confirmation is there that God is with Isaac. Even though Abraham is dead, God's promises and his blessings remain on Isaac and he will be faithful to it, which we will read about in the rest of this chapter and subsequent chapters. God's promises remained with Isaac. And it even says that Isaac lived by this well, this well from which Hagar benefited. It says in chapter 16, chapter 16, remember that she went out into the, the desert and then God appears to her and then it says, verse 14, Genesis 16, 14, Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. She commemorates this well where God appeared to her. She commemorates it and she does well to commemorate it. But what ended up being a blessing to her at that time, a temporary blessing to her at that time, ends up being inherited or a blessing to Isaac. Scripture often does this. That is, what the wicked possess, what unbelievers have and possess, ultimately, one day, will all be given to believers. Believers will own what unbelievers own now. They might own it. They might have stolen it. They might have stolen it from us. They might persecute us and plunder us. But eventually, we will have what they own. Now, this happened in a literal sense with Isaac. It happened in a literal sense with the people of Israel in the land of Egypt. Remember, God said that when it's time for you to leave, each one will ask his neighbor for articles of silver, articles of gold, and for clothing, and thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Well, they were mistreated. They were slaves. The Egyptians exploited them for a time in Egypt. But when they left Egypt, they were able to take the possessions of the Egyptians and go out with great wealth because of the uh, providence of God, how he miraculously changed their circumstances. This is the same here with Isaac. And it will be the same with all of us. Remember, that's why Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last first. That's why Jesus said about the rich man and Lazarus, you in your life, you had your wealth, but now, um, now you have your torment. Lazarus did not have his food, but now he is at peace because he's in Abraham's bosom. The circumstances were reversed. Scripture reminds us of this to encourage us to persevere. Further, verses 12 to 18. 12 to 18. In verse 12, it mentions the generations of Ishmael. And he's identified, for the sake of reminder and for sake of summary, the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, and Ishmael was born, uh, was uh, Hagar's son who bore the son to Abraham, verse 12. That's the relationship. However, that relationship, just as with Keturah and her sons, 
That physical relationship did not guarantee everything. First, let's see who the descendants were. Verse 13. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbael, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadad, and Temat, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. Firstly, we notice from these names that God is beginning to fulfill his promise to Hagar. What did he say to Hagar? In Genesis 16:10, it says, Now, moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. Too many to count. And then in terms of 12 princes, chapter 17, verse 20, 1720. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. And that's who, who are named right here in verses 13 to 15. They're mentioned here in fulfillment of this. Therefore, God fulfilled his promises to Ishmael and Hagar, the descendants um, of Ishmael being the descendants of Abraham. He fulfilled his word to them. Uh, most of these nations are also difficult to pinpoint in history, except for uh, Nabaioth and later in history, the Nabataeans, the Nabataeans of the intertestamental period and of the early centuries um, after, during and after the apostles. The Nabataeans in Isaiah 60 verse 7, they are mentioned uh, as being a part of the, uh, the territory of Arabia. And also Kedar, the Kedarites, they are also mentioned in that conjunction. Perhaps also Tema, Tema, um, it might also be where Eliphaz was from in the book of Job. Eliphaz the Temanite, perhaps he too was from there. So these are certainly villages or camps, tribes, nations that live in the Arabian desert, whether southeast of Canaan or directly south of Canaan or southwest of Canaan towards the land of Egypt, all the way down to the Red Sea in that area and the, and the Persian Gulf, going in that direction from the land of Canaan. Certainly these are Arabians. Now, before we proceed, when we say the Arabians, this is certainly indicative of the fact that the Arabians or those nations that lived in history in the land of Arabia were descendants of Abraham, either by Keturah or by Hagar. That is certainly the case. But a word of clarification is necessary. To be an Arabian does not mean one is a Mohammedan. A Muslim or Mohammedan, those in Islam, are not the same as Arabians. We have to keep that distinction. 
a Mohammedan or a Muslim, um, he is one who believes in the religion of Islam, which in the 500 and AD 560, so AD 560, after the time of Christ and his apostles, 500 years later, in the land of Arabia, this Muhammad springs up as a prophet, a false prophet. He rises up and invents his own religion, an amalgamation of ancient Arabian tribal religion and Judaism and Christianity and even false Christianity in Gnosticism. Muhammad, he combined all of this, put them in one pot, mixed the pot, and came up with Islam. He did that 500 years after the time of the apostles. After the apostles. So Islam, Mohammedanism, did not exist before that time. What we are describing here with Abraham, this would have taken place most likely in the 1900s and 1800s BC. So about 2,500 years before the time of Muhammad. 2,500 years before the time of Muhammad. To be Arabian would mean more ethnicity and language and culture, not religion, because the Arabian religion of the various tribes were idolatrous and pagan. They, they believed in all kinds of things that typical pagans or idolaters believe. Not the form of religion that Muhammad promoted. Not that. Which has elements of paganism, but it's not purely paganism. In that sense, if we're comparing what a pagan is who worships many gods and what Mohammedanism is. It's got some differences. And this did not exist. Mohammedanism did not exist in the time of Abraham. It's important because if you read about Mohammedanism, they claim that it existed in the time of Abraham. In fact, Abraham was a Mohammedan, a Muslim. And not only Abraham, but Noah. Not only Noah, but Abel. And not only Abel, but Adam. Mohammedanism existed from the time of Adam. From Adam. That's what they say. Which is not true. It's false. There is no history outside the Bible that can prove their claim. But they just repeat lies often enough and convince and brainwash their people and others to think, oh yeah, it did exist before the time of Muhammad. They do that and then they claim it's in the Bible but they have to distort the Bible, the Old Testament, in order to prove that. There is no evidence within the Old Testament that Abraham or Adam practiced Islam. Absolutely no evidence whatsoever. So make that distinction. There's a difference between being Arabian and being a Mohammedan. Then verse 17, 25, 17. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Remember, we said that Ishmael was an unbeliever, yet as an unbeliever, he lived to be 137 years old, not 70 or 80. God gave him a long life, 
God even gave him a peaceful death. He breathed his last and died. And he was gathered to his people, a different and distinct people, a different and distinct people, not the same place where Abraham went, but a different place. Let me give one example of where Jacob expected to go to a good place and a different one for the wicked nations. Genesis 37, 35. Genesis 37, 35. Jacob hears about the ostensible death of Joseph. He hears about the ostensible death of Joseph. In Genesis 37, 35, he thinks he has died. And then he says in verse 35, 37, 35, Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. He says he's going to go to Sheol in mourning. He doesn't mean he's going to be buried in mourning. He's going to die physically in mourning. He, he's saying he's going to go to Sheol, the afterlife, in mourning for his son. And why do we say he believed in the afterlife and he's not talking about his own burial? As though that's going to be the consequence of his existence. Psalm 9. Psalm 9, verse 17. Psalm 9, 17. 9, 17. The wicked will return to Sheol, or turn to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. David says that wicked nations will go to Sheol. They will go there. Well, how is that any comfort to anybody? It's only comfort to anybody if they go to a place of punishment in the afterlife. That's what he means by Sheol. He's, they're going to be gathered to their own people, to their own place in the afterlife because they are wicked nations who forget God. You see the distinction? It only makes sense if we're ta- not talking about the physical body. We're not talking about the burial and the death of the physical body, but we're talking about the survival of the soul in the afterlife. Jacob goes to one place and the wicked nations go to another place. But these two places are in this one designation, Sheol. One designation, two outcomes. One is good and one is bad. Abraham's bosom and the other is a place of torment like the rich man in Luke 16. Further, verse 18 says, And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled before, or in the presence of, or east of, all his relatives, which we have spoken of before. Havilah is this region or territory southeast of Canaan in Arabia, and Shur is a location just east of Egypt, but it's southwest of the land of Canaan, as you go from Canaan to Egypt. This is where he settled. Okay, now, why do we say Ishmael? Why do we say Ishmael, and for that matter, the descendants of Keturah, that Hagar and Keturah's descendants, 
and even specifically Hagar and Ishmael, that they were unbelievers. Because the Apostle Paul teaches us to confirm our interpretation. If we read Genesis properly, we would understand that. It would be obvious to us. But just in case it's not obvious to us, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 makes it absolutely clear to us. And whenever the Apostles interpret the Old Testament, their interpretation is a correct, accurate, supreme, authoritative interpretation. That's the way we should take it. Verse 21, Galatians 4.21, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear, break forth and shout. You who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. In Galatians, we have heretics who have knowledge and who should know better, but they don't believe in what they know. And in fact, they persecute the faithful in Galatia. That's the reason he's writing. They're persecuting them by preaching a false gospel and by implying or insisting that they practice certain things to be saved from their sins by works, not by Christ. It's Christ plus works, they believe. They're doing things like this, preaching these things, and therefore, and also threatening these Galatians. And he says, we're not like that. And let me illustrate for you that we're not like that. We are not like that because Abraham was not like that. Sarah was not like that. And Isaac was not like that. They were completely different. Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac believe just like I'm preaching to you, Galatians, like you first believed. So don't believe these false teachers who are trying to upset your faith. Don't believe them because they are those who are under law. Verse 21. They are of the bond woman, the slave woman, which represents slavery to sin. Verse 23, they are born according to the flesh. According to the flesh. They don't have the promise. They have the flesh, the natural, normal condition in which we are born into the world. Verse 24, two covenants. The covenant of Sinai is there to ensure that we understand our death. We are dead in trespasses and sins, and the law is meant to dis- uh, demonstrate that to us. We are slaves to our sin, verse 24. Hagar is the one who represents this. And this is the Hagar in Arabia, Mount Sinai in Arabia. He doesn't mention Arabia by accident, because Genesis 25 says 
her descendants dwelt in the land of Arabia. Arabia. But we're not like that because we have the Jerusalem from above. Verses, verses 25 and 26. Jerusalem above. And then he says, verse 29, that at that time he, that is Ishmael, born according to the flesh, persecuted Isaac, born according to the Spirit. And that's the way it happens now. And that's the way it happens in all ages, that this is the case. And because this is the case, there must be a separation. There must be a division. You cannot dwell and be content and happy and compromise with those who are unbelievers, but cast them out and separate from them. Don't listen to them. Because they're going to bring you down. They're going to weaken you and cause you to fall away from the faith. Therefore, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. You see how clearly he makes this distinction that Ishmael and Hagar were unbelievers. So we ought to consider Ishmael as an unbeliever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.